This is Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. We bring you the latest and best strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines by investing in healthy and engaged workforces that deliver real ROI. Welcome to today's program. Welcome to today's show. I'm Jim Purcell, founder of the Returns on Wellbeing Institute. And I'm Stephen Van Yoder, co-founder of the Returns on Wellbeing Institute. Stress plays a critical role in our personal well-being. And while moderate stress levels are a part of everyday life and work, sustained stress can lead to serious physical and mental illness. Yet today, stress levels are higher than ever. The World Health Organization has called stress the health epidemic of the 21st century, and estimates that workplace stress is costing American businesses more than $300 billion a year. Stress clearly is ruining employees' lives and employers' bottom lines. And here to discuss this with us today is Dr. Richard Citrin, a practicing psychologist and author of The Resilience Advantage. Richard will explain what's behind today's high stress levels and provide an approach for helping employees to address stress and helping employers build more resilient workplaces. Richard, good to have you with us today. Thanks, Steve. Jim, glad to be with you guys. Good to have you. Richard, uh, stress in the United States has reached crisis levels. We hear about it in the news and through the studies that say that America's stress levels are off the charts. What's going on here and what's causing all this stress? Well, you know, Jim, stress is not a new phenomenon. I've been practicing for over 30 years and I've been hearing this same conversation about stress and stress levels. It's just not something that, uh, that, that is easily remedied or that even people recognize uh, beyond the fact that we're all working harder and trying harder and have more and more things to do. And certainly over the last 20 years, the increase of technology has just added to that burden. But I do want to add, and this is what I talk about in my book a great deal around resilience, which is that as high as the stress level is for many people, most people handle it very well. And the research and surveys actually indicate that stress levels are high, but most people have extremely capable coping mechanisms for dealing with personal and organizational stress. What happens, which is what you implied earlier in your initial comments, is really around the chronic nature of stress. And whether we have an opportunity to kind of level the stress down instead of having it always be at the chronic, chronic stage, high intense state, that's where the issues and problems really begin. Uh, but for the most part, you know, in all honesty, the research and surveys show that most people handle stress pretty well and they feel confident about how they're able to do it. There are opportunities, however, not just to think about improving stress levels, but creating mental health. You know, and I want to mention this right at the beginning, which is, you know, mental health is not the absence of mental illness. Mental health is creating a workplace or creating a family environment or a personal space for ourselves where we're actually thinking well about ourselves, clearly about the world, where we're creative and able to endeavor and engage with people in a very positive and affirming way. So when we talk about not just moving away from stress, but creating mentally healthy workplaces, the value proposition of that for employers and individuals is enormous. It's not then about costing three or four or $500 billion. It's about creating three or $400 billion worth of additional value. And that's really where, where I think we should be focusing our energies around creating healthy workplaces and organizations. 
And do you think there's anything going on in today's environment that's causing stress to be higher now than it was, say, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? You know, well, I think there are several things. But first of all, technology is a big mix of that. You know, we're, we're, right. we're on our devices 24-7. Uh, people are going to sleep, looking at their email. They're waking up looking at their email. Uh, the 24-hour news cycle, you know, one of the highest issues around stress over the past several years has been around politics and people's concern about how the government is running. Financial stress, I know a topic that's very important to you, Jim, is financial literacy is a major issue for people with stress. And as you look at societal issues around things like economic inequality, those kinds of stressors and challenges create personal financial issues for individuals. In fact, I just saw something in one of our local companies here in Pittsburgh, uh, uh, Pitt, Ohio, who are a trucking company, they've identified that financial issues for their truckers is a major cause of stress. As we know, most people don't have enough money to replace a water heater in their home if it breaks right. down. And so this organization is working with their employers to have them put 15 or $20 aside a paycheck. And over the course of a couple of years, they'll have a couple of thousand dollars saved up in a rainy day fund that the company is going to make a contribution to to help them address that issue of financial stress for organizations. Right, right. Uh, I think an additional factor, of course, is as organizations have gotten flatter, people have more responsibilities. So in a number of organizations that I work with, uh, when somebody leaves, the organization doesn't replace them. And that individual who worked for them now has multiple responsibilities. So people are doing what previously may have been two or three jobs for what uh, they had additional support for several years ago. So those are certainly good reasons for additional stress for people. Right. One thing just I think it'd be helpful to clarify, there's stress that is natural, part of life, part of work, uh, that can't be avoided. Uh, you alluded to that earlier. And stress that may be avoidable, counterproductive. So how do you differentiate between inevitable stress and avoidable stress? Stress in and of itself is a neutral event. Uh, you know, events happen in the world every single day. I, I had a meeting this morning early, uh, and the trip that usually took me, uh, takes me 20 minutes, took me an hour to do. Uh, so, so that's a stress that's going to be there. How I handle it is what creates the stress in my body and in my head. Uh, so when I checked my GPS, or my Waze app, and so it was going to take me an hour, I said, you know what, stop off, get a Starbucks, enjoy the drive out there, listen to your favorite podcast, and have a good time. If I hadn't checked and didn't know that I was going to be an hour uh, on the trip and had only allocated myself 30 minutes, I would have been much more frantic going out there. So it's a little bit about our perceptions of how we experience these things. It's not so much that stress is inevitable, but stress is a biological response, which we can't manage. As a psychologist, for many, many years that I talked about stress, I would talk about managing stress. And what I came to see in my book on resilience is that you don't manage stress. Stress manages you. Stress is an inevitable biological response in the same way that gravity is a physical imperative. Stress is a biological imperative. You don't control it. And if somebody cuts you off on the highway, you are going to have a stress reaction. If your boss walks into your office and says, I have another project to throw on top of you, I'm sorry, you're going to go, I can't believe it. And you're going to have a stress reaction. We can't really control those kinds of they happen biologically in response. I think the comment you're making, though, Steve, which is important, is that we have an opportunity to determine how we're going to respond to that stressor. Richard, it sounds like what you're saying is the first minute of a stressful event you can't control because it is what it is. 
but the following 59 minutes uh, are something that you should think about ways of reacting in a more thoughtful, mindful way? You know, Jim, you've you've pointed out uh, a very important aspect of stress and, and the resilience model for me, which is everyone's familiar with the stress reaction, that racing heartbeat, your hands get cold and clammy, you get your head might feel like it explodes. That's the body's normal response. What people don't recognize and we don't emphasize enough is the body has a drive to return to normal. So in that next 30 seconds after that initial response, the body begins to pump out hormones that start to dr drive that stress reaction down and return the body to a, to a normal state of being. And you know, we're gonna have some side effects. You know, the body may still be, uh, the heart may be racing a little bit faster, but it's returning to that normal state. And in those other 59 minutes, you're exactly right. That's yep. when we can begin to think about how we want to consider a situation. Um, Richard, many studies show that stressed employees are costing employers in a number of ways, including reduced engagement, productivity, greater absenteeism, higher health care costs. From your perspective, what is it that employers need to understand about how stress impacts their employees and their bottom lines? You know, Jim, I think the most important area here, and I know, again, this is an area that you guys are, are all over and understand, is we have to engage in the dialogue. Employers, I think, are actually scared to talk about stress. And the reason is because discussions of stress can often lead to complaining and whining and griping and bitching. Mm -hmm. And employers don't know how to deal with that and are afraid if they get caught in that cycle, uh, the truth is that there's a lot of logic to what employers are unhappy about. However, if you take approach around problem solving and look at what solutions are to those situations, giving people the opportunity to raise those concerns and then moving them on from there, you, have, you can have a much more productive conversations because employees have ideas and strategies around how to address these kinds of issues. So the truth is employers need to, be, uh, need to use their leadership skill of uh, uh, demonstrating courage in being willing and able to talk about this issue and recognizing that it's an important one to discuss. And speaking of leadership as you have, how do we deliver that message to them in a way that they can they get it? Well, some employers are getting it, unfortunately, on the downside. You know, there was True. a story news yesterday around the fact that in Calif California, I think in California, there have been five police suicides in the last six months or last four months. Mm. Uh, it, actually, it's L.A., in Los Angeles, the LAPD has had five or six police suicides in the last five or six months. And they're at a loss of what to do. The police commander is uh, sending social media messages out. They're certainly trying to use more traditional approaches like employee assistance programs. But the message still isn't getting through. We uh, uh, need to have good mental health. They want to be seen as strong and capable. Uh, and the message they're giving is asking for help is a sign of strength, not avoiding asking for help being a sign of strength. And it's much the same with other occupations. Uh, I do work with hospitals and, and medical organizations. Uh, it's hard for them to admit that they are stressed and, and challenged and feeling uh, depressed and unhappy about their work. Organizations be, need to begin by recognizing this. And I think looking at it from a more systemic and systematic approach, as opposed to doing a more piecemeal model, which is what they're doing now, Primarily things like using employee assistance programs, which are great. Uh, some of them now are putting together SWAT units, SWAT units where people can go in and meet with individuals who request help 
among their peers. Stress is part of life and stress controls, well, it, you know, it manages us and then we get to choose sort of you know, after an event how we respond. But there clearly is a threshold. There's a point at which stress becomes, it, it uh, uh, preempts our ability to make those choices. And um, you know, when it's unrelenting or certain types of stress, and uh, I, I think it might be important to make that, where is that line? Uh, between uh, some tools and you know approaches might help uh, stressed employees deal better, and then where stress or the stressors stressors of the problem itself, where that might be. Um, but you know, because there's a lot of societal things right now we're seeing that seem to really be uh, begging the question of what is going on, you know, uh, uh, overall at the macro level. We've talked before about burnout. Uh, and burnout is really when you're getting to that, that tail end of the stress level. People endure pretty well. They engage with the phenomenon of grit uh, to move past a particularly difficult challenge. And what we have to look at is really the behaviors that people engage in. We just can't go with what people are uh, kind of raising concerns about. Uh, and so when Jim talks about things like absenteeism or performance measures, uh, I'm working with a uh, client now who is in, in a high stress situation. She has a lot of workload responsibilities. And uh, in my work with her, uh, she's been tearful in a number of meetings with me. Uh, that to me is a behavior that indicates she's under enormous stress. Uh, but I don't, I don't assume or presume uh, that people are under enormous stress just because they say they are. Uh, we're all under high levels of stress. It's really around how we perform in those situations that are critical, and so the organization has to look at the behaviors uh, that they're engaged in, or the behaviors that their employees are engaged in, uh, and of performance tips. Uh, these should be signs that any employer is looking at anyway. If uh, if a sales group isn't hitting their sales numbers, why is that? Uh, if a um, development team, uh, I'm working with another organization that's responsible for building software for a medical device company, and this group never hits their their uh, their um, scheduled targets. Well, why is that? Uh, part of it is that they're getting pressure from the entire organization uh, to get these development projects done on time. Uh, there's no sense of where's the priority, which one's most important, uh, how do we leverage the resources we have uh, to generate the most focused and most critical response. This is a cultural issue around how this organization uh, sets priorities, makes decisions, and drives results. Uh, this is not about managing stress or trying to be more resilient. This is around decision making and priority setting. And so in many ways, we can get away from the idea uh, that this is simply an issue of how do we improve uh, managing stress or getting people to perform better and look at more central kind of decision making and other leadership kinds of qualities, something people don't think about around wellness uh, and, right. and want them to, uh, because even around things like tobacco cessation or uh, exercise, uh, these things come back to how we make decisions and how we encourage people to uh, work and operate in the workplace. Even really good programs die in unsupportive or resistant workplace cultures. So um, you, you've talked a little bit about how workplace cultures and leadership contribute to employee stress. I, I, I can think of examples like you said, unpredictable schedules, 24-7 availability. Uh, things like that. Tell us a little bit more from a cultural standpoint, what organizational leaders should be thinking about in this regard. When you talk about wellness, uh, wellness um, strategies, 
Uh, the first strategy that always comes into play is that you have to get senior leadership buy-in uh, for the strategy uh, to be effective. And while that's important, I think, I think one of the dangers that's happened is people have been so focused on senior leadership buy-in that they've forgotten other leadership buy-in. And it doesn't matter if the senior leader, leader says, we're going to do this. If it doesn't happen at the mid-manager and you know, senior manager level, it's not going to be effective at all. And so one of the cultural implications of this is how do we train and educate our mid-level managers to understand that this isn't just around the stress and wellness, it's really around operational effectiveness. How do we get the organization to operate better? How do we get people, as we said earlier, Jim, to make better decisions? And oftentimes it's, you know, it's small things. I, I worked in an organization once where uh, all, their, all their team people worked in a basement. Uh, there was paint on the wall that was chipping. Uh, the carpet was old and even smelled when you went in because it mm -hmm. got wet. It was in a basement. It never had a chance to dry out. And when I would meet and talk with employees, they would say, you know, I, I, they would refer to this as the dungeon. I'm working in the right. dungeon. Uh, and guess what? They were. Uh, so it was an accurate perception. And that drove a lot. I can't say that drove stress. I would say that that exacerbated the stress levels that already existed in this organization. <laughs> You'll know, start with the environment. Some very, very simple things to do uh, to literally look at changing the cultural uh, implications and expectations, but people get used to the same old thing, and so they don't think anything different of it. And quite honestly, when the managers and, and even the leaders went down into the dungeon, it was the dungeon. What do you expect? Uh, yeah, so sometimes yeah. just need an outside perspective on something as simple and straightforward as that. Yeah, we. Um, you know, uh, Richard, uh, oh, just I had a follow-up question. What he's saying here, Richard, we've we've been doing a lot of uh, hard looking at uh, the role of low pay. Uh, in creating workplace stress. We're seeing study after study that shows up to 40% of the U.S. workforce is experiencing unrelenting, deep financial stress that's taking a toll on their physical and mental health. Uh, before this call, we, we've all uh, seen the, we talked about and uh, have all commented on the uh, HBO documentary by Sanjay Gupta, One Nation Under Stress, and spent a lot of time looking at uh, working class people, uh, particularly, and low pay leading to rises in suicide, drug overdoses, alcoholism. Uh, but I'm wondering what you're seeing in the field around the role of financial stress, uh, which is unrelenting by definition if low pay is at the core of that, and is what, what you're seeing and what, you know, what employers might take note of. Yeah, most definitely. And I think that is an area where most employers are sensitive to uh, but not for the reason you mentioned, Steve. It's primarily around retention issues for them. You know, I used to tell employees in 2006 and seven when it was an employee marketplace, uh, you know, be careful because things will change, and they did in 2008. And I gave the same message to employers. Uh, be careful. Right now, uh, you know, it's fat city for you because uh, employees are looking for jobs, but that'll change, and it's changed now. Uh, so I think it's an area that employers are sensitive to, uh, and I don't think they necessarily consider it to be uh, something that drives stress level, but they recognize that it does. I think the example I used earlier around Pitt, Ohio, is an excellent example of a company that understands right. it and has come up with a good solution for it. Uh, you know, they're willing to make a contribution above and beyond 401ks. In fact, they explicitly say to their employees, we don't want you to get into a financial 
jam where you take money out of your 401k. They recognize the importance of building that retirement. Uh, and equally important, they say, we want you to have a rainy day fund. And that's what they call it. And I think that's a terrific way of approaching it and having employees, encouraging employees to put a small but you know impactful amount of money away in each week in a paycheck to which they'll make an additional contribution. So I think that's a very small action that an employer can take as opposed to you know, an across-the-board salary increase, which certainly uh, would be welcome, and we're seeing that happening more and more uh, as we deal with this financial issue. I think the other piece is around financial literacy, and the more employers can do around financial literacy, helping people understand uh, about money and how it operates. Oftentimes, through the EAP, there's some type of financial organization that's available for help, usually a debt collection agency, um, and that can be fine. Uh, to help employees address, uh, I shouldn't call it that collection agency, it's the credit counseling agency. And you want those people to come in and talk about financial literacy and what people can do to help manage their money a little bit better. Uh, yet, there's nothing going to be better than, than raising wages along the way. That's going to go a long way towards uh, improving the financial situation and financial stress. That's a good start anyway. it um, One of the things that we've been finding is uh, for example, at the Returns at Wellbeing Institute, we're, we're studying an organization that uh, says and believes that it has a really terrific first-rate employee well-being program, and, and yet it seems pretty clear to us that they've not really asked their employees, what are your needs in the area of mental and emotional and financial well-being? Uh, what's your view about the importance of finding out firsthand from the employees what are your stress levels? What are your depression levels? I know there's a um, there's stigma about admitting that you have mental illness, but but how can you find out more about what the true levels of stress and depression are in your workplace so you can do something about it? Yeah, I think that's a tough area, Jim. As you mentioned, it's not one that people are readily open to talk about. Certainly, doing it, you know, I've seen it done around wellness days. Uh, where you can have a little more of a confidential discussion area. The challenge there is you tend to get people coming to those uh, events who are, are um, kind of dealing with the issue a little bit more, and you don't get a good sense of uh, what the rest of the population is. Uh, I often see this built into engagement studies mm -hmm. uh, that employers uh, do, so you can get a little bit of an idea about how employee well-being around stress issues uh, function if you begin to think about those engagement studies. Uh, as being a metric of of um, wellness, but you know they've gotten so simple now that they're down to one question: that net promoter score, and that doesn't necessarily uh, get to the stress uh, level very well. I think a, another approach to take, which I alluded to earlier, is to ask the question: How can we create a more mentally healthy workplace? In other words, what what would this workplace be? What could this workplace be if we were more affirming, more positive, more mentally healthy? And asking the question that way, that gets us away from the griping and complaining about something and ask the question around what can we do better. Uh, that may be things as you know, simple as uh, you know, we're going to eliminate 24-7 uh, text message expectations. Uh, right. One employer I worked with implemented a, a no Thursday morning email day uh, where within his, his work group there were no emails for Thursday morning so people could get some some things done. It didn't work. People needed to have that email in place, but it was a good effort to ask the question, can we reduce some of that intensity 
around people uh, dealing with that challenge of responding to email. Yeah. Uh, talk to you about, uh, you know, I have one client who starts off every one of his meetings uh, with three minutes of mindfulness exercises. So he starts by everybody uh, just sitting in their seat and he leads them through a guided meditation for three to five minutes with a focus of bringing people into the sense of presence uh, into the meeting and being able to look at the agenda uh, with kind of a fresh set of eyes. So here's someone who's taken action away from just assessing the stress level, which is important, and instead looking at kinds of actions we can take. I think we know a lot about what we can do to address these stress levels. Uh, and I think uh, just a good way to kind of get to the assessment is to ask the question, what can we do to be healthier mentally as opposed to just, and, and I think in that kind of survey item, you can include questions around where, you know, where's our major stressors coming from and what can we do to create a more mentally healthy workplace? You know, the, uh, the World Health Organization just added burnout to uh, its list of uh, international classification of diseases. Yes. So, you know, in your opinion, uh, where does burnout fit in all of this? Is this, uh, you know, where it relates to stress, arises from stress? Talk about that. Yeah, it's really, it's really a result of chronic, unrelenting stress. And, it, it, you know, there's kind of a stress curve, uh, which everybody has seen. And kind of in the middle, you know, you have stress levels here and performance here on, on the x-axis on the y-axis and uh, you know the middle is kind of uh, your know, maximum performance at maximum stress uh, when you get to that very tail end is where you begin to experience that burnout you know behaviorally uh, with employees it's not simply around complaining or unhappiness it's really around uh, you know the health issues people not being able to come to work uh, people um, you know performance levels dropping precipitously um, you know, presenteeism, people not focused on what they're doing. Uh, even the, the situation I described earlier about an employee crying on, at work, someone, you know, very capable engineer, you would be someone you'd expect to see tearful. Uh, this is when you're beginning to see some of the signs of, of burnout for people. Uh, people leaving. You know, one of the questions that uh, HR people should be asking around in their leave interviews, that is when they talk to people when they're leaving, is, you know, what's been the stress level here? Has that been a contributing factor to your leaving? Because, as I said earlier, people will often self-manage their, uh, their stress level. And if it gets too bad, uh, particularly in today's economic climate, they'll leave an organization. They don't have to stay anymore. There are many job opportunities. Uh, so that leave interview is a good place to get honest feedback from people about the stress level. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's interesting about burnout, Steve, it's a concept that's been around for... Uh, since the early 1980s, uh, Christine Maslach uh, coined the term and, and wrote a book about it. Uh, and it's been sitting interestingly dormant uh, for many years. Mm. You've heard it talked about in the stress literature very much until the last four or five years, which I think supports one of your earlier comments, Jim, about the fact that stress levels have been escalating. Uh, yeah. And now we hear things, uh, not just police suicides, uh, but I'm working with a number of healthcare organizations around physician suicides. Right. One of my good buddies is a neurologist, and I wouldn't think that neurology has a high suicide rate. He said it's one of the highest suicide rates of all the medical professions. Surprising. Uh, you think it would be other areas like orthopedics or something like that, uh, or cancer oncology. Uh, but no, across the medical field, there's high levels of suicide and stress and depression, not just from treatment, but certainly in healthcare, where there are so many changes occurring, and you're seeing a, 
in industrialization of healthcare. Uh, it's a challenge for physicians that grew up in, uh, you know, small group practices or solo practices to now have to operate within a medical industrial complex and make the changes associated with it. Richard, uh, on a, a related subject, in your book, you talk about how employers need to develop organizational resilience as a strategy to help employees deal with unavoidable stress in positive ways. Uh, can you right. talk about this core idea and what it means for companies and employees? You know, Jim, my, my definition of resilience is a little different than just bouncing back. Uh, I define our resilience as our ability to effectively plan for navigate successfully and bounce forward from challenging and adverse situations in such a way that we grow and learn from them. So there's a planning and preparation part of my model. There's a how do we deal with it in real time when it's actually in our face. And then how do we learn from that experience so we grow from it and literally bounce forward, not simply bounce back from it. Uh, and I think uh, what I talk to managers a lot about is, is really focused on uh, all three of those areas. Uh, and in the preparation area first, I'd like to emphasize a lot of these leadership skills that we've already talked about. How do you set priorities? How do you make decisions? How do you communicate with employees? How do you manage workload? How do you adjust to changes that are happening in organizations that are uh, occurring every day, These it seems like, these days? How do you prepare employees and get them ready for the inevitable changes that they're going to have to face and address along the way? That's a leadership issue, much more than it is simply a stress management issue or, a, or even a resilience issue. Uh, the navigation piece uh, in terms of organization, you know, tools around mindfulness, about taking time to, you know, Steve, everyone knows this story. Steve Jobs used to take his employees out for walks. Uh, I met with one of my clients last week, uh, and when, we went into, when I went into her office, she said, let's go have a walking session today. And so we walked for 45 minutes, and she had a lot of great ideas. I had a lot of great ideas because we got out of that box that we were in of having to sit in an office. Uh, so in real time, we made that change. And in the bouncing forward, of course, it's about how do we learn from mistakes? How do we acknowledge that some mistakes are inevitable? Uh, they're, they're, you know, some situations are almost doomed to fail. How do we understand that on the front end and address it along the way? These are in many ways leadership issues that if the organization began thinking about wellness and, and health improvement uh, around culture of operations as opposed to just a program we're going to put in place here, uh, we'd have much healthier workplaces, which is what we're driving for. So for me, the organizational resilience piece is really around how we, how we address the management of people as much as how do we address the challenge of stress. And I would think one of the keys would be to keep reminding managers and above that this is important, they have to keep it front of their brain and, and make it part of what they do every day and be evaluated for it. You're exactly right, Jim. And, you know, a lot of my work with organizations, uh, particularly in the leadership area, focuses on this idea of leadership competencies. Mm -hmm. Things like, you know, how do you make decisions as a leader? How do you communicate with your employees? How do you drive results? How do you take action? Um, and what I'm seeing more and more in some, particularly in the larger organizations who recognize this, uh, is that they are addressing stress and resilience head on. Um, PNC Bank, which is a company I work with, have a resilience competency in their leadership dictionary. 
they expect leaders to address resilience. And in the definition of resilience, they talk about managing stress. So they talk about it there. Another company I work with is Goodyear Tire and Rubber. They talk about managing stress directly as well as a leadership skill, not just as a leadership skill for themselves, but also as a leadership skill for how they manage other people. And that is a, that's a competency that their leaders are evaluated on. Now, I'd say both of these organizations, they've done the important step of putting it out there. They recognize it's important. I'm not sure that they've necessarily come up with the, the, the optimal solutions yet. Uh, but I think that's the, the important first step is they've recognized that it's a critical issue. Uh, and, they're, and they're, you know, educating their managers about how to do it effectively. I think that's a tremendous uh, opportunity for these organizations to take leadership in their fields by recognizing the importance of doing this. You, you said uh, the optimal solution. What, you know, it's a final question, broad brush. What, what steps should an organization take to, to take this on? Uh, you know, just in sort of a, you know, to, to start addressing and putting programs and uh, strategies together to, to build resilience into their workforces. Yeah, I think the first thing, you know, as, as we've talked about, is to recognize stress is a real phenomenon, that it impacts your, your productivity, it impacts your bottom line, and it, it impacts your retention of employees, uh, that, that the work pressures we have are real, and that we have to address those in total, not as a separate standalone little program uh, that is managed through the employee assistance program. We have to take a larger perspective and think about this as a workplace cultural issue. Uh, I think it's got to be driven, you know, it's got to be recognized by senior leadership and it has to be built into a structure like leadership competencies or performance. Mm -hmm. It's got to be put in place in a, in a you know, we, we'd like people to do this because it's the right thing to do. Uh, but things don't always happen like that and oftentimes don't happen like that. And, um, you know, sometimes we have to put things in place from a requirement point of view to make sure they happen effectively. And I think this is one of those areas that we have to put things in place. Earlier in my career, I worked for the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, uh, and they did not have a no-smoking policy. As early as 13, 14 years ago, employees were still allowed to smoke on campus. And I remember going to the emergency room at Presbyterian Hospital or tertiary care hospital in Pittsburgh, and there'd be patients, doctors, and nurses, and visitors standing outside the emergency room smoking. And, and ultimately, we were able to put a policy in place. And the story that's interesting about this was that the concern that the organization had was that we would lose nurses. And nurses, the nurse shortage was so real uh, that we were concerned we would lose nurses. Uh, and then that would be a problem for the organization if we prohibited smoking on campus. What we did was we got all the health systems in town to come along with us and say, hey, we don't want to be laggards in this issue of smoking uh, cessation on campus and not allowing smoking cessation. How could any healthcare system deny that? So we got all the other systems aligned with us. Everybody implemented it within a relative, relative same time frame. And voila, all the healthcare systems in town became smoke-free campuses. That made a tremendous difference in the well-being, but it came from an organizational perspective. It wasn't simply uh, because we should you know, because uh, we shouldn't smoke. There were real economic issues the organization had to look at, and we had to come up with real strategies for, the, for uh, solving it. But people knew it was the right thing to do, and we had the commitment of that leadership team at UPMC, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, as well as with the other medical centers here in town. Outstanding. Richard, thank you very much for being here today and 
To learn more about Richard and his company and his book, The Resilience Advantage, please visit www.citroenconsulting.com. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. To learn more about our resources and programs that help employers make employee well-being a bottom-line business strategy, please visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com.